Welcome to the Fitness to Dive podcast. I am Dr. David Charish. I am a dive medicine physician, board certified in emergency medicine and undersea and hyperbaric medicine. A question every diver should ask themselves prior to any dive is, am I fit to dive? As a hyperbaric physician and diving consultant, I work with the diving community to evaluate and treat diving-related issues. As an educator, I offer lectures, workshops, seminars, and symposium on all aspects of dive safety, dive technology, and dive medicine. A question every diver should ask themselves prior to any dive is, am I fit to dive? Understanding what constitutes fitness to dive is key to our ability to process this information and allow for effective decision making. In a real world example, as a diver with a dive trip scheduled and now with a new medical diagnosis and recently prescribed medication, what information do you need to both absorb this information about your medical condition and have the cognitive ability to make an informed decision? We will have conversations with leaders in the fields of dive safety, dive technology, dive medicine, and most importantly, divers. These podcasts will explore the many aspects of fitness to dive. We can better understand our fitness to dive as we address these six areas. Medical fitness, psychological fitness, nutrition, physical fitness, knowledge, and physical skill. So whether you are a recreational diver, technical diver, public safety diver, scientific diver, commercial diver, military diver, or free diver, understanding your fitness to dive will make your diving safer and more enjoyable. Please join me on this important conversation on fitness to dive. This is Dr. David Charish, dive medicine physician of Dive Medicine and Hyperbaric Consultants. There can't be a better place to have a conversation with ocean explorer Richie Kohler than the new London Maritime Society Custom House Maritime Museum in Connecticut. Richie Kohler, a technical wreck diver with over 45 years of diving experience, at least 124 dives to the Andrea Doria, numerous expedition dives locating and identifying World War I and World War II U-boats, having participated or led international expeditions, ocean exploration as a diver, submarine pilot, and remote-operated vehicle pilot, with direct involvement in multiple documentary specials in film and television series. Shadow Divers, a book by Robert Curson, features the journey of both Richie Kohler and John Chatterton, a true adventure of two who risked everything to solve one of the last mysteries of World War II. And the book, The Mystery of the Last Olympian, written and co-authored by Richie Kohler and Charlie Hudson, a story of discovery and exploration of the Titanic's tragic sister ship, the Britannic. Both books are exceptional reads. Richie Kohler, thank you for being here today. Hey, my honor. Richie, what are you up to today? Well, actually, today I'm here in uh, eastern Connecticut, uh, obviously doing a podcast with you. And then shortly after that, I'm going to be entertaining uh, a group of divers at a uh, southeast Connecticut dive club called Seacon and doing a presentation on German U-boat losses uh, along the eastern shore of the United States. Well, I'm looking forward to that because I'll be there to hear you for sure. What kind of uh, dive projects are you up to, expeditions? Well, recently I completed a week-long uh, virgin shipwreck expedition off of uh, southern Virginia where we dove a number of uh, targets that had been imaged by side scan, but to the best of our knowledge, never visited by divers. 
And uh, that's always exciting. One of the things that is a driving force for me in, in exploration is, uh, you know, I hate to quote Star Trek, but to boldly go where no one has gone before. There's no feeling like it, David, that when you know you're the first person down there. And generally, the clue to that is that there are artifacts and things that would have been taken by divers years earlier. So when you see these items, these these frozen moments in time, um, it's, it's pretty heady. It, you, I love history. I love the human story in history. And these physical objects make that connection for me. So... The Virgin Shipwreck went off, off of Virginia was uh, something that we just uh, completed a few weeks ago. Uh, I've got some more wreck hunting uh, to do here off of eastern Massachusetts. And this fall, I'm hoping to get back, if as long as COVID doesn't shut us down, get back to Greece and do some interior um, dive penetration and filming on Titanic sister ship Britannic. Wow, that's exciting. And I'm supposing that it never really gets old, does it? You know, I'm getting old, David. You know, and I think that that's going to be one of the subjects we're going to talk about in a sure. little bit. But uh, I've been diving for over 45 years, and uh, I have as much excitement about going to, it's funny, funny that this is a left-handed way to bring it up, but so we're talking about diving now. I'm going to be talking about diving later tonight, and then tomorrow I'll be diving with a gentleman named Dennis at uh, a Bridgeport, Connecticut, again, looking for shipwrecks in the Long Island Sound. And, you know, some people always associate me with it has to be uh, something grandiose like uh, Titanic or Britannic or it's got to be deep. Um, and there's nothing further from the truth. I actually am just as excited to dive things in 60 feet of water uh, as I am to do it in 460 feet of water. It's about the story. It's about the dive. It's about the camaraderie. It's about a day spent on the water. Well, your enthusiasm is palpated throughout this building, the Custom House in, in the Maritime Museum here today. Getting back to your two books, in 2017, we were both speakers at a dive show in Syracuse, New York. At the book signing, you were kind enough to sign both of my copies of The Last Olympian and Shadow Divers. Here's what you wrote in my copy of Shadow Diver. David, I hope I never have to see you professionally. Richie Kohler. So first, thanks for those two great stories. And second, let's talk about that statement. I hope I never have to see it professionally. Well, uh, for, for the listeners who don't know what you do, um, obviously you're a hyperbaric physician or, or you work in the hyperbaric medical field. So I was alluding to the fact that I hope I never have to be in a decompression chamber looking at you on the other side of the glass. Well, I kind of figured that. But actually what I really want to talk to you about today are fitness and diving and the six elements that are really need to be addressed as we prepare ourselves in fit, getting fit to dive. The first being physical fitness, the second being medical fitness, the third being psychological fitness, the fourth being physical skill, the fifth being nutrition, and the sixth knowledge. So Richie Kohler, as an ocean explorer, technical wreck diver, and expedition leader, I've got a couple of questions for you. Shoot. All right, so how do you define your fitness in diving? Well, I, uh, again, I'm 59 years old. I'll be 60 next March. And, um, you know, through the course of my life, I've 
wrestled a little bit with weight. You know, I've never been obese, mind you, but I've never exactly been very skinny either. And uh, I have worked in construction my whole life. So uh, I, I would consider that for the majority of my life, I've been a, a somewhat more than average strong person. I don't have a sedentary lifestyle. I don't work in an office sitting at a desk all day. But uh, to that end, I recognize that as I get older and um, I do actually less physical work in the field, I find that there was a need for regular exercise. And so to that end, three days a week, I do weight and strength training um, with mild aerobic exercises included to maintain not only my physical tone and strength, for not only uh, um, for diving, but more importantly, for my own physical well-being. I mean, like I said, as we get older, uh, we've got to help maintain the machine so we can have a longer ride. Oh, absolutely. I'm all along for that long ride. So the question I have then is, when you have a given expedition coming up and it's deep penetration uh, in adverse conditions per se, do you prepare your fitness differently for that given expedition? You know, there, there has been anecdotal evidence uh, given to me that uh, exercise a couple of days before a big dive facilitates uh, uh, decompression. And to that end, um, I would not say that I would do extensive weight training. One of the things we would never want to do is pull a muscle or strain yourself before a big dive. But um, a lot of our projects require uh, air travel. And, and I've seen with my own eyes, divers suffer decompression sickness mostly from dehydration and also from uh, extensive uh, airplane rides where they were they spent in some cases up to 24 hours sitting in an airplane and then the first thing they do is they get out usually in a very hot environment they're dehydrated and they start diving their you know what off and suddenly people who are doing a normal profile that they should not have gotten bent they got bent so um, looking at that evidence and seeing it firsthand in my own experience, one of the things that we wind up doing is really hydrating. Um, I mean, super hydrating, especially if we're going to be doing a very long exposure diving. And what I mean by that is uh, doing a one hour dive or 40 minutes at a bottom, uh, 40 minutes bottom time at a depth of uh, excess of 360 to 400 feet, you're gonna have a six to eight hour in-water runtime. And um, although we do try to stay hydrated even during the decompression phase by drinking um, from, from uh, juice packs or uh, other methods of staying hydrated, I think it's really important two days before the dive that you're being hydrated, um, you're getting some exercise, you're taking uh, the muscles that, I wouldn't say atrophied, but got bound up in that long airplane ride so we usually do a shallow checkout dive. We usually do some light exercise. Um, one of my uh, constant dive putties for the last 20 years is Evan Kovacs, and he almost always brings with him a, a, a basically a rubber band to work out with so that we can do, you know, different exercises with that band. And, you know, it, it, gets, it gets the blood flowing, gets the muscles toned up. And again, when you think about 
technical diving, we're generally wearing uh, in excess of 100 pounds of gear all over our body. And at some point, you've got to stand up and walk with that to the edge of uh, uh, the boat, which generally is never a stable platform. And uh, so the potential for a fall, a wrenching of the back, all of these things are real. And when you, again, just flew halfway around the world to make what uh, many people would say is a career-type dive or an expedition-type dive, the last thing you want to do is suffer uh, an injury because, A, you were not warmed up or hydrated. Well, that's a great uh, explanation of your thought process and your fitness for a given expedition. Since you're now 59 years old then, how has your preparation for maintaining your medical fitness, your physical fitness, your psychological fitness changed over the years? Well, I, I don't think anyone uh, listening would, would think uh, I, I was making it up when we say when we're young, we're just totally unaware of certain things. It's only as we get older um, and, and we realize that whether it's your eyesight or your hearing, things start to, I wouldn't say fail, but change. Our bodies change, our, our stamina changes. So in, in reflection of that, obviously now there's more uh, focus on cardiac concerns and health, i.e. checkups, EKGs, uh, where I may not have had an annual f uh, checkup when I was in my 30s, well now, I've certainly been doing that for the last decade, and a, a thorough annual checkup, blood work, et cetera, just to make sure that there's no underlying or unknown medical conditions that can manifest themselves in a very stressful time in a dive. I mean, we've heard about diving accidents that in uh, retrospect uh, were caused by an underlying medical condition that did not present itself or that the diver was unaware of until it manifested itself during a dive. Well, I don't think anybody wants that to happen because obviously uh, something as simple as just passing out um, and finding out that you have hypertension or something like that can be deadly, obviously, diving. Absolutely. So um, making sure that your cardiac health and, and that all of your, your blood pressure, all of these things are paramount as we get older, and especially if we're going to be... Um, adventurous, to use a word, and allow ourselves to continue diving. Tom Mount, uh, when I grow up, I want to be like Tom Mount. I want to keep diving. And, and there's other fellows uh, uh, like Dan Orr, who's, you know, not a, as, you know, he's, he's not what I would consider a senior citizen, but by, uh, uh, by his actions and, uh, you know, what he's doing with his life. Uh, but by the letter of the law, I guess he is a senior citizen. So if you want to continue diving, um, for years on end, well, then you have a responsibility to make sure that you're physically and medically able to go diving. Um, you know, I think a lot of the people that are listening to this are sport divers, but they're still going to travel uh, when COVID's over. They're going to travel to foreign countries. They're going to get on planes. They're going to go places where immediate medical help may not be forthcoming. Why put yourself in that position? But at the same time, are you going to give up something like diving that you love? Oh, absolutely. And speaking of which, I mean, even to the general diving community, as well as tech divers on going on these expeditions, as we age, it takes a lot more conditioning to maintain the degree of physical fitness we once had. 
It also takes a longer period of time to return to our previous peak performance should we lay off from physical activity. We could use the example of we couldn't dive for a while because of work commitment, family commitment, or medical illness, in this case COVID-19, for many reasons. So what do you do after a period of laying off before you resume your diving activities? Well, you, you, you alluded to something, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there first. Um, there was a period of time in my life, um, which is documented, you mentioned the book Shadow Divers. And in the book Shadow Divers, there was a time where I was going through personal changes and strife uh, with a divorce and then uh, a lengthy custody battle and then getting custody of my then small children um, put me in a in a place where my head wasn't and my head wasn't ready or in a good place to do technical diving. And uh, although I could have probably gone just sport diving, that's not what I did. I did deep technical diving, and I knew that I was in no way, shape, or form mentally able to commit to those kind of dives. And so I stepped away from diving for two years. And in the over 45 years that I've been a certified diver in diving, that's the only time that for two consecutive years I did not go diving. So when I came back, uh, I literally took baby steps. And what I mean by that is I got my gear out and uh, the first thing was I checked all my gear. You know, things had mummified and dry rotted and, you know, um, kind of froze over and uh, that applied to my skills as well. You know, even though I had been diving and it, it, did, it does come back like riding a bike, there's these stumbling moments. And in those stumbling moments could be the moment where uh, you make a wrong turn and wind up getting in trouble, uh, hurt, or even worse. So my return to diving was one where I would go and do relatively shallow dives, check my gear out, check my skills of maintaining buoyancy, um, my ability to uh, reach back and isolate my tanks. I mean, this is something that you take for granted because you never do it. You don't ever have to isolate but you're supposed to be able, because in an emergency situation on open circuit, if you've got to be able to reach back and shut those valves, if you don't have the dexterity to do it, you can get into a really bad situation. So um, I, I, I wound up using part of the spring to go to a quarry. At the time, I lived in New Jersey, so there was a quarry that I would go to in Pennsylvania and just work on those skills so that when that summer did hit and we were gonna be going offshore, my equipment and my body and my mind were back in the game. And that's what it should be. And I think when we're talking about conditioning, deconditioning, to get conditioned, it depends on the state of deconditioning. And it takes a, 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 an important step in your mindset to realize when you're deconditioned and take the necessary steps to become conditioned. Well, I've got something to share with you that I never really made public before. Um, three years ago, I had a grievous injury on an ATV in which I shattered my pelvis. I had to have reconstructive emergency surgery. Um, and right now I have something like 36 screws and I think four metal plates holding various parts of my pelvis and hip together. Um, for a while there, that they didn't know if I would even be able to walk. 
post-surgery, I was 30 days in an uh, orthopedic uh, care unit at the hospital. Then I was in a rehab for another 30 days. Wow. And then I spent nearly four months at home, non-weight-bearing, in a wheelchair. I did exercise. I was allowed by my, my surgeon to use uh, up to 20 pounds of weight to work my arms up, and everything else was just um, physical movement and physical therapy of my legs without actually ever standing. Because I took it very seriously, and what I mean by that is my doctor scared me. Uh, she made it clear to me that being um, in a wheelchair for nearly six months. If I did not watch what I would eat, it would be easy to obviously balloon up and gain a lot of weight, that which would then be very difficult to get rid of. If I did not take my physical therapy seriously and continue to push myself and keep my muscles that were atrophying at least um, flexible and movable as much as possible, given my limitations, um, I would never I would have very much difficulty trying to get back to a baseline. Well, uh, after that six-month period, I was uh, told I could finally get out of the wheelchair, and I literally, David, stood up and walked across the room. Yes, I was shaky. Yes, I was uh, weaving like, like like a drunk man, but I could walk. And I then went through physical therapy for another four months and then continued to work out and go to the gym ever since to get back to where I was. And the whole point of telling that story is that you don't know what you have until you lose it. And I literally lost it. I was, for all intents and purposes, uh, wheelchair bound. And, and I know what it was like now to not be able to walk. Um, prior to the emergency surgery, there was a very good chance I would never walk again. Wow. And so um, I have had a 100% recovery. I can ski. Um, I, can, I've, I went diving. And um, when I did get back into diving, one of the things that I, I did was not only talk to my surgeon, but I talked to Divers Alert Network about my injury. Um, and I went back into diving starting very shallow. I went down to Florida. <clears throat> I made a series of single tank, uh, 30-foot reef dives just to see what it was going to be like for my muscles, which again, I mean, it's when you, when you don't use your legs and your hips uh, for six months, you, can, you, I, you can't even imagine how weak you become. Right. Things that you take for granted, um, stabilizing muscles, just silly things like being able to pick one leg up and, and balance yourself on one foot. Sure. All of those muscles had to reawaken. And Things like climbing a ladder with scuba gear on a rocking boat or standing on a rocking boat with a scuba tank on your back. All of these were quite challenging for me in those early days. And so I had to really work very hard to get back to the baseline where I am now. Well, that's a compelling story, and welcome back, Richie. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So another question then. As a dive instructor, how do you deal with a student that you might have concerns with regarding their degree of fitness to dive? And I know that in your dive history, I see that you have been a dive instructor in the past. Well, you know that uh, training agencies mandate that if 
someone wants to sign up for SCUBA, they uh, have to answer a questionnaire. Um, and if they answer in the negative to uh, any of these questions, then it's th up to them to go and get a medical release from a doctor. That being said, um, I have eyes. As an instructor, if a student is incapable of the physical uh, energy or strength or dexterity to do the task, then I need to tell them that they've got to work on that skill set and work on their dexterity, their ability to be either limber or reach back because they have to be able to, to do these skills which there's always a purpose for them. The purpose is generally self-rescue, generally self-survival. Uh, and you know, if you can't reach back and isolate tanks, if you can't reach around and um, remove an obstruction from behind you, if you can't reach down and put on your own fins when you're in gear and you're bundled up, you know, no one's going to dress you. You need right. to be able to do these things yourself. Sure. So. If, if a student's unable to do any of those things, then we try to work with them and help them do what they have to so that they can achieve their goal, which is to graduate the class. And uh, I have, uh, on a few occasions, not passed. I don't like to use the word failed, but I didn't pass students. I told them that they needed to work on certain things and then come back to me Right. and we would revisit the class at that point. Um, I take that responsibility, you know, when you're, when you're in teaching advanced techniques, uh, there's no margin for error. Right, I, I agree. So now you're an expedition leader and assuming remote diving in challenging conditions, what are your criteria for selecting your team members? David, that's an excellent question, and I'm, I'm, believe it or not, I'm asked that quite often by people. It's like, hey, how can I get on one of your you know, projects? Well, um, the reality is almost 90% of the people that I work with, I've been working with through the years, and I've met them. Along the way, there's always one or two people that come in, and usually these new people that you know generate fresh blood, if you will, in, in the, uh, the groups that I work with and, and, and dive with, um, start out in a support manner. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, back in the days of the Atlantic Wreck Divers, we used to call it paying your dues. And in a way, it's truly um, where an apprenticeship is going on. So divers that may have the certifications and the qualifications, but they don't have the experience, and they're an unknown entity. And, you know, in, uh, in technical diving, uh, especially expedition technical diving, and, and the definition to me of an expedition is one where you're usually in a very remote location, um, it is uh, w usually with great difficulty. There's a lot of work involved. People are tired. When you're tired, you make mistakes. So many hands make the work light. So bringing in support divers to help with that, to help with not only the physical aspect of sherpering gear, helping support divers in a decompression phase so that they're not exerting themselves. These people gain experience because uh, one of the things I learned very very long time ago, um, is if you want to become a better diver, 
be around other divers that you believe to be better divers and or more experienced divers. And, and some of it, you know, it's a joke. We say you, you become a better diver by osmosis, but the reality is you're becoming a better diver because you're observing good, uh, I'd like to believe, good practices and um, in a good spirit of teamwork rather than just the lone wolf approach to diving. Well, if I was going to go on an expedition as an apprentice, I certainly would want you to be the team leader. So thank you, Richie. You're welcome. Um, although each individual diver needs to identify any issue that might affect their diving prior to the dive, have you been in a situation where a dive team member needed help in recognizing or encouraged in identifying a degree of lack of fitness or preparation? Ooh, there's, um, there's a tragic undertone to what you're asking me right now. And um, it's, uh, it's difficult when a close friend, and generally in the, the, the example I'm about to give you was the leader of an expedition. So um, I've had three incident, incidents where the person who was organizing the expedition, who was an experienced diver, had for, in one particular case, um, and I'll just leave the names out, had just traveled uh, across two or three time zones, showed up last minute, did not have the right equipment, started jury-rigging things, and was about to make an incredibly challenging dive. And me and two other divers actually had to approach the boat captain and then sit down and play Dutch uncle for the person who actually organized the trip. Right. and tell him, you're not going in the water. And we had to have the boat captain back us up. So in the end, they wrecked that particular person recognized we had their best interest at heart and that you, you, can't, you can't rush certain things and jury rig certain things the way that they were trying to do. And, and so the fact that they are a very busy person and the fact that they had... Uh, had to travel and everything was so last minute, all of that was leading up to an accident. And before that person ever went in the water, you know, we saw that this was an accident waiting to happen right. and we shut it down. Unfortunately, years later, um, I didn't see a similar situation. And we took for granted that one of the most experienced people in our group who happened to be our team leader, uh, had not been diving for a year. And I'm speaking of Carl Spencer and the tragic events surrounding his death in 2009. And we, we learned at a terrible cost so many lessons. But the first one is that no one is above reproach, including the team leader. And whereas everyone else actually filled out medical questionnaires and dive logs, no one questioned the person who was putting together the trip. And it was only after his fatality that we realized that as experienced a diver he, as he was, he had actually not been diving deep on a rebreather for almost a year wow. prior to the dive where he ultimately died. Incredible. Now, we don't know what factors, there's, there's, without going into the death of Carl Spencer, we don't know how many different factors played in, but that's unacceptable on many different levels. And we as a group, as the group of his teammates, 
um, feel, and I believe uh, Lee Bishop or uh, another member, Edward Orbe, we we all felt like we failed him because we didn't question him. You, you know, how do you question the boss? Right. But you have to question the boss. Right. You know, we, as a diving as a team, uh, in an emergency situation, I like to teach my students, you never know where your next breath's coming from. And they look at you and like, but oh no, we, we train and we carry bailout and emergency gas and this and that. And I'm like, you're not listening to me. Whenever an emergency occurs, it happens so quickly. Yes, you train to bail out, you train. But the point is that you, you live from breath to breath and you really don't know where your next breath is coming from. You assume, and you would like to think it's gonna be a working right. rebreather. Yeah. So um, there's been other fatalities where uh, divers had gone to bail out or to use their stage bottle, and the regulator mouthpiece was ripped or filled with mud, which then causes a near drowning situation. So my whole point is you never know where your next breath is coming from. Right. And the only way to truly be prepared for that is perfect practice all the time not just practice but perfect practice so you do it over and over again right and also feeling empowered enough to be able to say something if you see something absolutely very good thank you can you speak about the dive planning for example that addresses fitness and diving and how it was integrated in your dive team operating procedures for the expedition the britannic in 2006 in 2006 one of the things that we did was we asked every uh, team member that we invited, we asked them to submit to us their most recent dive log for review and for attachment to our document. Now, many of the um, team members were not only personal um, friends and dive associates, so therefore I knew they had been diving, I had known, but there was other international members that I only knew by reputation. Good reputation, mind you, but still reputation only. So to them, they would submit their most recent dive logs. And with, without fail, uh, each one of them would have a, a physical bearing of which there was no question as to their physical health. And what I mean by that is, yes, you, you can't look at a person and see if they have heart disease. Of course not. So therefore, we ask them to submit to um, giving us a medical uh, release and mandating that they get a checkup. So back in 2006, we told every one of our team that six months prior to the project, they had to go and get a diving medical completed. And if that brought up anything in that medical, then they would have to clear it with their doctor. Um, you know, I've had Fatalities occur on dive trips where people fibbed. Well, I'll just say it. They lied. They right. lied and said that they had a doctor check and they, they, they ultimately died of a heart attack, if you can believe it or not. And it's, it's terrible to think that people either know that they have an underlying condition and they want to go diving so bad that they, they lie about it. Um, but there's no room for that in expedition diving because my health and my well-bearing, as well as the next team member next to me, is dependent on the entire team. Uh, that's, the, that's the definition of a team. You know, we're supporting each other and we are looking for others to be there in case of an emergency. And uh, the minute that somebody has a medical emergency in the water, 
everybody is now that their purpose is to support that that diver to get them back to the surface. Right, and I think we see that also that same example for recreational divers, right? That they're not necessarily truthful with themselves or their dive fitness form. Uh, they tell a fib a lie, they fail to disclose, and yet they have some condition that puts them and their dive instructor or their dive team, uh, their dive partner at great risk. So I think that is really something that is uh, unfortunately very common throughout the, you know, all, di all levels of divers. We only find out about it after the accident, obviously. That's correct, and that's not a good time to find out. You have a medical issue, and many divers who have a diving fatality due to cardiac disease have known uh, or disclosed cardiac disease but haven't addressed it properly. So that's a preventable death. So I think that's something that we all need to think as, particularly as we age and we increase our risk for heart, heart disease. Have you adopted any additional safeguards uh, in your dive planning as your dive team members are likely older for your expeditions? Well, you know, again, um, most of these are people that I've been diving with for nearly 20 years. And the new people, believe it or not, I know it's going to sound kind of funny, they're young blood, meaning they're younger people coming right. into the sport that want to uh, mentor, if you will. And, and, and by the way, I, I just want to say I love the concept of mentoring. Um, so uh, just a quick aside, when I started doing what we now refer to as technical diving or deep diving, there were no deep diving classes. There was no shipwreck classes. There was advanced open water was the, the highest training class you could go to. There were specialty courses, but none of them really even remotely touched on the type of diving that we were doing. We were literally diving outside the box. And so those hard learned lessons of survival in an increasingly hostile and deep environment were given to me by more experienced divers. So therefore my lineage is one of mentorship. And I still to this day believe that that is the best way for people to, to learn. Yes, they have to go, of course, and be qualified and certified by a training agency. But good practices are, are something that you, you, you have to ingrain into yourself and being surrounded by other people that do it. So to get to your question about older divers and, and, and trying to make sure, I mean, we're all looking out for each other. And to that end, if, if we're on an expedition, we're all being truthful. And that includes if you're taking high blood pressure medicine or any of those things, which as you are aware, other as we get older, there's people that are taking uh, certain medications right. that may not be conducive to diving or they may not be conducive to deep diving, but they're okay for shallow diving and et cetera, et cetera. So um, honesty. Right. and clarity are the best policies. And when you have a relationship with people over 20 years, then you kind of know everything about them. So that, that's, that's the good side of diving sure. with, with your friends, if you will. Um, the, the, the downside is, again, there's that specter that somebody may not want to share some personal information because they feel that they will be um, passed over for an opportunity to go sure. on an expedition. So. That's why we kind of ask everybody to force them to be honest by saying you have to get a medical release, you have to go to a, uh, 
your your physician and make sure that you're signed off on all of these things. And so, obviously, that's good for you too. As you know, you may have an underlying. You know, if you have an arrhythmia, you have some kind of problem you weren't even aware of, but you get a checkup and now you're aware of it. Sure. Sometimes it's something that can be easily rectified. Richie Kohler, thank you for taking the time to have a conversation about fitness and diving. Stay tuned for our future podcast as we continue the conversation and take an in-depth look at medical fitness to dive, how medical fitness standards are developed, diving in the era of COVID-19, and understanding our underlying medical condition. We will introduce special guests in the fields of dive medicine, dive technology, and dive safety as we continue this conversation. This is Dr. David Charish from Dive Medicine and Hyperbaric Consultants, signing off for now.